Hey there, thanks for joining us. This podcast is put out into the world by Living Water Community Church, located in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Pastor Clark Cothern. If you'd like to know more about Living Water, or if you'd like to drop us a note, or if you've got a question, or if you'd like to have us pray for you, head on over to lw-cc.org. Now, let's join today's podcast in progress. Someone asked me this morning, you, Steve, you go speaking all around the world, giving presentations kind of in front of all sorts of people, so this is like no big deal for you, right? Oh, man. I think perhaps it's the weight of this topic, and if, if you have had a chance to capture what we're trying to feel Peter's heart here as he's sharing uh, from Second Peter, um, from, from this letter, just imagine if someone gave you something that they felt was terribly important right before they died, and they gave it to you, and you were the one who was responsible to making sure everybody knew what he wanted. That's the kind of burden that this book actually carries. Okay, So we're concluding our study of the book of Second Peter today. And uh, really, in studying this over the past couple of months, actually, we've been preparing the elders. Then listening to Pastor Mike and Tom unpack the first two chapters, it really became clear to me that Peter really has a harmonized message across all the three chapters. It's a message of urgency, knowing that he was going to die soon. And it's a message to people that he cared deeply about. It's a message whose theme can speak directly to us today, to the church in general, but I think also to this congregation, and to you and to me. So although we'll be spending most of the time in chapter 3, we have to review what Peter's presented in the first two chapters to ensure we capture this comprehensive message. So here's Peter's theme. He begins right at the start of this book. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then if we go all the way to the end of this book, we read, he ends, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So the bookends for his message really tell us the theme of this book. So the meat of his message then is how do we do that? And maybe more importantly, why? So we've established that Peter wants to remind us of something important. And this is how uh, Mike was led to introduce the book to us. And Peter starts off by reminding us of what we've all been given. And he says, uh, starting in verse 3, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the, not just knowledge of him, this is not gnosis, this is epinosis. This could be translated the complete knowledge of him or the true knowledge of him. And then going on in verse 4, he says, for by these, okay, we'll see above, the divine power, true knowledge of him, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, which we're going to talk about today, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So he first reminds us what we've been given, and then notice the source of godliness in our lives. It's not our own power. It comes from God. 
this living life in godliness is driven by promises from God and striving to live our lives in the manner that would allow us to escape the corruption driven by the desires of the world. That's what he's saying. So there's the, the what and the why uh, of his message introduced. So then he goes on and he says, well, this is what we ought to be doing right now. Now, for this very reason, so again, what we've been given, apply all diligence in these areas. Faith, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. So Peter recognizes that these things are not going to come to us naturally. They require diligence. We've got to keep at it. When it's hard, when the voices around us are telling us otherwise, when we're discouraged, when we're tired, when we feel weak. But remember, Peter says they're driven by the divine power in our lives. So what's the result if we apply diligence in these areas? Well, he says in verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, so this is an ongoing process, you will be found neither useless nor unfruitful in the epinosis, the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be certain about his calling and choosing you, and you'll never stumble. In contrast, he who lacks these qualities is going to be blind, short-sighted, and they will have forgotten the purification from his former sins. So if you followed the news of late, there have been a couple of really high-profile Christian leaders who just in the past month have declared that they were abandoning the faith. Reading some about what they wrote in their very public uh, abandonments, if you like, they claimed that they, they just didn't know anymore. They lacked certainty about what they believed. Well, Peter's message was directed right at them. But the urgency of Peter's message is, don't wait until it gets to that point. Don't wait until you stumble. Don't walk blind and short-sighted. And don't forget that you've been forgiven, what you've been forgiven and purified from. He's writing to remind us of these things. He says, I want to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. Uh, Tom unpacked this a little bit last week. There are things that we know at an intellectual level. But that's not, not the knowledge that we're talking about here. This is a knowledge that comes from a deep relational knowing with the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So he wants to remind us of these things. He's going to stir, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. And after my departure, when I'm, all, when I'm gone, and I'm not here to stir you up anymore, you will be able to call these things to mind. So capture the urgency of Peter's message here. But then he goes on to say, that the foundation of what you believe is solid, it's reliable, and it comes directly from God. This is what he writes. We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to come back to that word coming in a minute. He says, we were eyewitnesses. We heard, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, directly from God. He says, we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven. We have the prophetic word made more sure. He's talking about the scriptures. And it's not a matter of one's own interpretation. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Greek word that Peter uses here for coming is parousia. Now this is a word that speaks to the physical presence of something. 
And so that's what we want to explore a little bit further today. Now, before Peter gets into the, this, the meat of this message, he has one more warning. And he says, look, there's going to be those who want to lead you astray. And they're not going to come from outside. They're going to come from right in your own circle. It's going to be the insiders, okay? And they're going to say, he says, false prophets arose among the people before. False teachers are going to arise among you as well. He says, the way of truth will be maligned. What is he saying about that? He's basically saying their teaching will go against all those things that we're supposed to be diligent in. That's what it means to malign the teaching, maligning the truth. It also speaks to maligning what the source of that truth is. Remember in the words we just spoke about, um, hearing the direct word from God about who Christ is. Um, the prophetic word made more sure. The Holy Spirit who spake that directly into men to put to paper. Those false teachers are going to malign that truth. They're going to call question to the veracity of God's word. Now Peter says, they have ulterior motives for doing this. You know what? They're going to exploit you. They're literally going to take your money. I remember reading just a few months back about a pastor of a church having to justify to his church uh, why he needed to buy a Ferrari for his uh, wife. He's fully supported by the church. He should definitely call into question the leadership in that church and what the ulterior motives is for that teacher. And he also says, their day of judgment is coming. I will set things right eventually. But beware in the meantime. So let me get to chapter 3. We arrive now at Peter's main purpose of his letter. He says, I'm stirring up your sincere or your pure mind by way of a reminder that you should remember. I think he's making his point. Remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. So what's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. And the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostle. So now he's talking about the New Testament. So he's saying, look, remember, you know that these things came directly from God himself. His words came through the prophets and Jesus Christ. And they've been preserved in the scriptures in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then he says, this is what you're going to be faced with. Verse 3 in chapter 3. He says, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So there's a few questions that should come from our mind if we were to hear this scoffing. First thing, well, are we in the last days? The second thing, well, actually, why hasn't this happened yet? And then the third thing is, well, why is this even important? So Peter's about to remind us of those things that should allow us to respond to these questions. So what we're going to unpack in part today is the theology, if you like, around last things. This, this word eschatology, okay? It's made up of two words, eschatos and logos, which literally means the doctrine of last things. So eschatology is present throughout the entirety of Scripture. If you just thought, you know, doctrine of last things, well, that's Revelation, 
And then there's a few chapters in Daniel I know about, and I never really understood them anyways. It's not that important. That's actually not the picture of the Christian faith. Um, This is a a really neat quote from a, a German theologian. And he says, from first to last, and not merely in the epilogue, Christianity is eschatology. It's hope, it's forward-looking, and it transforms the present. It is the key in which everything in it is set. It cannot really be only a part of the Christian doctrine. Rather, the eschatological outlook is characteristic of all Christian proclamation, of every Christian existence, and of the whole church. If there's anything that should be characteristic of Christian faith, it's hope. It's hope with a surety of something that is to come because of who we got the promise from. Not from, as Peter said, cleverly devised tales by some guys and fishermen who lived a few thousand years ago. But promises that came directly from God. So the key phrase here is that our understanding of the doctrine of last things can transform the present. It's important for us in the here and now and not just in the by and by. So we're going to talk about three points here this morning. The hope and promise of the perugia is the first one, or or Christ's coming. So Peter says, well, you have everything you need to know in the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures. So let's go back to the Old Testament, and let's understand what God has been telling us about the coming Redeemer. So right back in Genesis 3, right after man's fall, we see the first promise of the coming Redeemer. He says that he was going to be a seed of the woman. Over the rest of the Old Testament, the prophets begin to reveal more and more of the characteristics of this coming Redeemer. We learn later in Genesis that he would be the seed of Abraham. We then learn that he would be a descendant of the tribe of Judah. In 2 Samuel, we learn that he is going to be a descendant of David. Over several passages, we see this coming Redeemer is going to be unique because he's going to be a prophet, he's going to be a priest, and he's going to be a king. He's going to fulfill all of the administrative roles of his people. He is, in Isaiah, he told us he's going to be Emmanuel. He's going to be God with us. So let's go back to that word perusia. Perusia means the physical presence of something. Not just some ethereal coming, but a physical coming of something. Okay, God with us. Isaiah then goes on to say that he's going to be the suffering servant. We see that in Isaiah 53. And then we learn from Daniel that he is going to be called the son of man. Throughout all of the scripture in the Old Testament, the prophets say that he was to come in the last days to redeem his people and to be a light to the Gentiles as well. Thank goodness. That's why we're all here. So the promise of the coming Redeemer starts at the very beginning. After we brought sin into God's perfect world, the promise is given of one who would come and set things right. And the characteristics has now unfolded over thousands of years through the prophets. And the harmonized theme of the Old Testament promise, prophets, was that he was to come. So, what's the evidence that we are in the last days? Well, this is interesting. Let's look at what happened at Pentecost. Okay, Remember, this was 50 days during the, 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 the festival. At the 50 days, which, the, which what they called the Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was given to believers. 
And remember, people were marveling about what was going on. They were speaking in all these different languages. People wondered if they were drunk. And Peter comes right out and he addresses it. And he says, he basically says, this is what was prophesied by the prophet Joel. He says, in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. He's calming everybody down and saying, this is what we've been waiting for. We're in the last days. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. If we go to Hebrews, the Hebrew writer, he says, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. So yes, absolutely. We are in the last days. So if we are in the last days, well, what has arrived already? And what are we still waiting for? The prophets had this same struggle, actually. Peter, in 1 Peter, and he actually reminds them that he had told them about this topic in the book previously. Okay, so he reminds them in chapter 2, because this is a reminding book. And he says, remember what I told you in my last letter? He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. They saw this as one event. The Messiah would come, Okay, we'll accept the suffering, and then there would be this glorious kingdom that would be ushered in. So, Peter is speaking here of the living hope of the resurrected Christ. He had suffered, but he still has yet again to come in glory. So he's calling attention to the fact, look, the Old Testament prophets were looking intently for this, for the timing of the revelation of the coming Redeemer, and they saw this twofold picture as well. So if the coming of the Redeemer is supposed to come with the ushering in of the kingdom of God, has that happened? Well, the Old Testament prophets, again, spoke much about the kingdom of God associated with the coming Redeemer. First thing we see in Jeremiah talks about the sign of the kingdom of God. And this is a familiar passage to you, but this is, comes from Jeremiah 31. And we're going to pick it up in verse uh, 31 as well. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day, I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. These are the words that Jesus told all who were willing to hear. Right? Did he not say those words? That your sins are forgiven? Did he not pick up the cup? But now you're better prepared now. Okay? 
Because when Jesus lifts up the cup, he says, this is my covenant in my blood, the new covenant. Okay? So absolutely, Jesus has ushered in the kingdom of God. We also learn in Jeremiah that about the restoration of Israel. Now, with a proper reading of what the prophets were, were foretelling, the prophet's conviction is not that it would be Israel as such that enters the eschatological kingdom of God, but only a purified, believing remnant. Okay? And Jesus also said, look, I know my sheep, talking about his people, but there are sheep who are not of this flock. And we are all going to be one flock, one shepherd. We studied this in the Growth Encounters this morning. Okay? So we are all part of that believing remnant of restored Israel. Okay? Uh, we already mentioned the outpouring of the Spirit from Joel was a promise of the coming kingdom of God. Then we hear about the day of the Lord. This is a day of judgment and wrath for some, but blessing and salvation for others. Hmm. Haven't seen that yet. Then it talks about the new heavens and the new earth in Isaiah. And we have a number of beautiful pictures of the glorious kingdom to come when it says, wilderness will become a fruitful field. Desert shall blossom. Dry places will be springs of water. Peace will return to the animal world. And the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We sing songs about this. Well, that hasn't happened yet. So the Old Testament prophets were shown this picture of the coming kingdom of God that would be ushered in by the promised Redeemer. But if we're in the last days and we are currently experiencing the kingdom of God, seems to me that there's something still we're looking for, right? So this was still the outlook from the Old Testament prophets, okay? Now, look what happens when the Redeemer arrives. This is in the temple when Jesus is being brought as a baby. And we pick it up in Luke 2, verse 25. It says, And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. Okay? He was looking forward to the reconciliation. Okay? Looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law... Then he took him into his arms. He blessed God and he said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. He knows he can die now. The Messiah had been presented to him. He was here. According to your word, your promises. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon was already looking to the whole earth being filled with the glory of the Lord on the arrival of this little baby. But then we get a second confirmation further down that chapter, verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up, at the very moment she's talking about Simeon declaring the arrival of the baby. 
At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So these two prophets, the prophet and the prophetess, were uh, given the assurance that the coming Messiah had come, the Redeemer had come, the kingdom of God had been ushered in. John the Baptist also had a message from God. He was preparing the way of the Lord. Okay, And if we go to Matthew 3, we see his message that we've all heard before. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's coming. Okay? He saw a twofold messianic work, okay? Because he saw those who repented, the Messiah would save, and the unrepentant would be judged. It, later on in that chapter, in chapter 3, he's, he's preaching, and he says, the Messiah will gather his wheat into the granary, and he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. Well, with Jesus' ministry, John would have seen a lot of, gathering in of wheat. But he didn't see judgment. He didn't see the final justice that the prophets had been looking forward to. And John finds himself in a dark, cold, damp prison cell, and he's about to lose his head. And he starts to have some doubts about the message that he'd been giving, given and who this Messiah was. And he sends word to Jesus and he says, is, is he really the one or should we be looking for another? Do you see what he was struggling with? He knew the promise of the coming of the kingdom and the promise of the Messiah was a twofold work. And he, he recognized the coming and he said, well, where's the justice? Where's the judgment that was to come? Is, is there someone else coming? Jesus goes back to the promises of God and he sends word back to John and he says, tell John this. This is from uh, Matthew 11. Pick it up at verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. Remember, eyewitnesses. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Basically, Jesus is saying, these were the promises you had of the coming Redeemer. And it's all being revealed by eyewitnesses are seeing this and hearing this happening. So he says, yeah, I'm the one. Jesus also announced the coming of the kingdom. This is the end of part one. Part two resumes at the next track.